My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. a story we've been talking a lot about creepy clown sightings around the country and now a new clown has surfaced and if you're heading to bed shortly this picture is bound to give you nightmares 20 year old jonathan martin is now under arrest police say he was caught lurking in the woods near an apartment complex in kentucky last week martin is now charged with wearing a mask in public and disorderly conduct there have been reports of clowns trying to lure children now in six different states including Pennsylvania. That sure is a creepy photo. So what about the clowns right here in western New York? As 7 Eyewitness News reporter Hannah Bueller found out this evening, not everyone is down with the clowns. People have different opinions when it comes to clowns. I think they're kind of cute. They do silly stuff. I think they're scary. Most we talk to say they're not a fan. Is they're just really creepy? Do you like clowns? No. <laughs> Very weird, their faces and stuff. And especially when it comes to scary, creepy clowns, most people don't really like that. Is your clown going to jump out and scare me now? No. Okay. <laughs> and recently, those creepy clowns have been popping up in mysterious places across the nation. Reports of people dressing as clowns in several states trying to lure children and adults into wooded areas is having an impact on local performers, especially for people like Connie Morrow, otherwise known as Punkin, who relies on her local clown business. But I get a lot of questions from the parents. Um, what's going on? Who are these people? Why are they doing this? Funkin entertains at children's birthday parties and other activities. She says parents have been worried about recent incidents making headlines across the country. They are questioning it about why are they doing this and are those real clowns and are you doing it? And well, no, I'm not doing it. Morrow says the majority of clowns are good ones who care about children and just want to make them smile. But a real clown will never, ever try to scare the kids. Studies have been done, modern day studies, which I'm going to mention in my book as well, that prove children just do not like clowns. They do not like them. There's something about them instinctively that children just do not like it, it brings up everything negative emotion wise and it has a lot to do maybe with the face mask and the inability to read emotions which is a key thing for children that they need in development you know but 
I think it goes deeper, I think, is because they can see something that we kind of don't understand as adults. Because you always see, don't you, you know, there's these old photos from, like, the 1900s of clowns holding babies, and the babies are just screaming, and they have this contorted face of terror, tears just bursting down their eyes, their mouth wide open, you know, the veins are popping out of their neck, they're like, get this monster away from me, it's got me, it's got me, type of look on their face. And the parents are there in the image like laughing, like, oh, isn't this cute? How darling, how, you know, how innocent, how lovely, how silly. And it's, listen to your child. <laughs> I don't know what was wrong with these people during this era, but they... They seemed, I think maybe it was some kind of trauma that generation was under that they just couldn't see the evil staring them in the face or something. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And today I have a returning champion, someone who was just recently on the show and really rocked the boat and shook up a lot of what I've previously thought about the ancient world and the Nephilim and even these weird and strange paranormal phenomena that go on to this day. You know, these sorts of creepy, unsettling things that don't quite fit into, you know, our already agreed upon categories, I feel like this gentleman here has introduced a whole new perspective, at least for me. So without further ado, Paul Stobbs from Understanding Conspiracy returns to the show. Paul, thank you so much for being here. And I heard from you before we got started that you've been receiving an influx of requests for podcast interviews, and I'm really stoked that you would take out some time to be here so thank you so much for that and yeah if folks maybe are hearing this for the first time without hearing our previous episode you want to just fill everybody in real quick on your channel and your perspective and what your main focus is in your research sure i'll, I'll get it. i'll try to be as brief as i can this time <laughs> I try, i'll promise i won't go on for two hours but yeah I'm, i run a youtube channel called understanding conspiracy And around the 2016 period, I created a theory or a concept which basically summed up in an elevator pitch term, has discovered that what we call a modern day clown and everything it looks like in the West with white makeup, uh, multicolored clothing, red lips, red nose, wild, crazy red hair, elongated forehead, skull cap, prominent brow ridges, big shoes, big gloves, everything to do with a modern clown and its image is a caricature purposefully created to venerate the Nephilim. It is a ancestor spirit worship costume worn by secret societies such as the Shriners for the specific purpose of channeling the spirits of the Nephilim on the other side in much the same manner that ancestor spirit worship cultures all around the earth do by also wearing similar looking outfits and costumes with the sole purpose to be possessed by spirits. Um, We have just occulted it in the West because we are a highly Christianized place, you know, the the, the European Anglosphere itself. And therefore, things like this aren't so out in the open as they are, let's say, in uh, cultures in Africa or India or um, all throughout Asia and through um, Indonesia, all the way down the Oceanic route through Australia. Um, They are very open about what they are doing. They are willing vessels for spirits 
but that's quite, quite taboo where we're from. So it's kind of been occulted and hidden under this visage of something we call a clown. So only those who kind of understand the symbol will know that's what it can be used for. Most of us on the profane mass level who are quite ignorant to occult symbology wouldn't think twice about it. We consider it in an exoteric sense, so not an esoteric sense. On the surface level, it's just a funny, fun image created for the children. And we are not really meant to go much deeper than that. But those who created it can now wear that costume in public for the sake of their rituals, which they used to do in things like circuses through the 19th, 20th centuries, in order to create rituals and venerate and evoke their gods, the Nephilim, the demons. And people, the public, wouldn't recognize that's what they were doing because they don't understand that's what the clown is a symbol for. For those in the know, use it for that purpose. And uh, we'll get into some extra deep stuff today, I think. Like I said, we covered the history, the basics in the first conversation. We 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 covered for two hours a lot of ground. The ancient history, the antediluvian history, the origin of the Nephilim, all the way up to the modern day creation of the modern clown through the Camille de l'Art movements out of the medieval period into the, uh, the turn of the century um, with the creation of the pantomime in Britain, which then molded the clown character we know today in the 1800s through a character called Joseph Grimaldi and a Freemason who created the costume called Charles Dibdin. So that's all summarized up to where we are. Again, watch that previous conversation or go onto my channel. I've talked to many people, as we just said, over the past week, repeating the same thing. I, you can find me anywhere now. Just type in Nephilim look like clowns and I'm sure you'll find all the information you need. But I'm looking forward today to uh, getting a bit deeper with you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that reminder, folks. Please go listen to that previous episode if you didn't already. And if you have, just for a refresher, maybe go and check out Paul's channel before you listen to this, because Paul's got a ton of really awesome videos. They're all manageable. They're not like these four or five hour, you know, sections each. They're, you know, things that you can tackle one at a time, maybe on your lunch break or, you know, in between listening to this podcast and another podcast. But uh, yeah, go and check that out. And uh, Paul, when it comes to demons, the Nephilim, you know, I've heard more and more, especially now with aliens becoming more of a mainstream topic, I've heard a lot of people in the Fortean realm of research kind of lump all these beings together. And recently I had a conversation with a gentleman who kind of agreed with that. Not that I necessarily believe that. I just sort of, I'm fascinated with all this. But I'm curious to know your thoughts. Like, when it comes to the world of the paranormal, when it comes to cryptids, ghosts, you know, energy beings, demons, I mean... Do you think most of it can be chalked up to these beings that we learned so much about the last time you were here? Do you think that these sort of beings can sort of take on many forms and, and that's part of their, their nature, their, their trickery? Yeah, well, I, th I think they're a hierarchical um, system, just mm -hmm. like we humans have. You know, I think there are many different kinds and types of creatures. Of course, there's, there's variety among them. They're not all the clown-looking entities that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a very specific creature, you know, the, the offspring of fallen angels mating with human women in the antediluvian age. They would have been the most clown-like in nature, and those features kind of dissipated down through history to the modern age and through the bloodlines. I think many of them look a lot more human. There's arguments that are saying that there's the 
this kind of people within people who are actually of this particular race, you know, but they look very human these days because of interbreeding. But then I do think the cryptid phenomena is, as you said, this remnant of what happened before the flood continuing into the modern day. So, for example, we know from the book of Jasher, for example, it explains that um, once the big Nephilim had all killed each other in huge battles and wars, think of Clash of the Titans in Greek mythology, you know, the you know, the gods of Mount Olympus, the fallen angels, fighting against the Titans, the, the Nephilim offspring, you know, the giants. A lot of them were wiped out then, but there was this period of time just before the flood happened where mankind was mixing genetics together with the help of those angels who were still around, who didn't mate with women and weren't locked up in chains. And it seems like that mixing of kinds was where the creation of a lot of weird hybrid-like monsters started to appear. You know, Sirens is a prime example, half fish, half human entities, half bird, half human entities. That, but there's literally just thousands of creatures that are, are chimeric hybrids. There was animals mashed together into monstrous forms. You know, that you think of Echidna, for example. She was, in Greek mythology, the mother of monsters. Um, and she would mate repeatedly with a, another monster called Typhon, um, who was like a half-serpent man, monster hybrid creature, um, some kind of god of the sea, or he was local to that particular area. And she herself was a half-serpentine woman monster thing. And even you know, if you want to figure out where they came from, it says that the women who mated with the fallen angels and became their wives, well, they became sirens, is what it says in the Book of Enoch. So it seems like something happened to those women where perhaps they were gifted by the angels they married, the ability to genetically modify themselves and become snake monsters. So they have longer life. They can defend themselves in this brutal world or they were punished and turned into these monsters for doing what they did by God. You can int- There's no answer for that, but we know it kind of happened. And the interesting thing is the sirens were actually allowed to sit in on the, the Mount Olympus meetings of the gods. <laughs> so they were considered important, you know, if you look at it from the biblical perspective, then it makes sense when you realize these are the wives of the fallen angels. Of course, they're going to be allowed to sitting on the meetings when the gods get together and do their plan, you know, what we're going to do next to corrupt the gods' creation type of thing. Um, but this mixing of kinds was happening. Animals, humans, humans mixed with animals, mixed with animals, all sorts of things were going on. And I suppose you could call these petty Nephilim, faux Nephilim, you know, little Nephilim. They were human beings who were attempting to become like the Nephilim, something else, something not human, something better. They became X-Men, you know, they became mutants. They became those beings that had superpowers that could fly or have super strong skin, um, like an exoskeleton, like an insect. They took features and traits from animals to become powerful and stronger and better. Um, And it was an affront to God and his creation through and through. And this is what happened just before that flood happened. And Noah was said to be perfect in his generations, implying he was probably somebody in his family who didn't take these genetic twists of some kind, you know. And he says all flesh became corrupted. And that's what it was really talking about. And I believe there's lots of stories parallel to Noah's story all around the earth of people surviving a great flood in different ways to Noah. Many of them are climbing to the top of tall mountains. Many of them are perhaps in some weird vessel made from a tree trunk or something and managed to just barely, by the skin of their teeth, survive the flood somehow. And these characters who are described in a lot of these myths seem to have the ability 
like a hardiness that human beings just don't have. They can survive these extreme circumstances in ways a normal human just wouldn't be capable of. They can go hundreds of days without water or food, like a camel. Do you know what I mean? They had these strange abilities. And if you imagine that there were mermaids around, women mixed with fish, and you know, then a flood is no problem to survive for those creatures. You know, So there's plenty of evidence to show that there were parallel flood survivors, which I believe were part of the all-corrupted flesh next to Noah, who also made it to the other side. Yeah. So they continue to survive after this flood and go down into the modern age. And I think there's a plenty of chimera creature stories, cryptids, hundreds of them on every continent, and people still contending with them today that are leftovers from this particular event. I agree. Yeah, well, I'm... I, I've I wanted to sort of ask you about that just to sort of intro where I hope to go with this conversation because I think yeah in that parallel sort of comparative way you can understand maybe some of the stranger things that are still going on to this day through this lens and you gave some great examples right there but this book that I found that really I thought you know put a cherry on top of the fact that I'd be having you on the podcast today because I didn't set out to uh, do this. I planned on just interviewing you based on where we left off last time, but I found this really interesting book that has a chapter called The Phantom Clowns. Now, this is a book by Lauren Coleman. It's titled Mysterious America, The Ultimate Guide to the Nation's Weirdest Wonders, etc. So, I'm going to read a little bit. It's not a long chapter. It's only like two or three pages, so I might read the whole thing. But before we get into reading it, I'm noticing that the chapter starts off by talking about the Pied Piper of Hamlin. And I remember from our conversation previously that there are all sorts of interesting pieces of folklore from Europe describing characters that maybe we take for granted, like the ones in the Grimm's fairy tales and the Pied Piper has made his way into those stories. So this might be a total, you know, whiff, you know, <laughs> hitting a miss, swinging a miss. But is there anything that you've come across that links the Pied Piper to any of this weirdness? Because there's some things about him. He, you know, gets all the rats out of town and he plays this mystical music. So maybe nothing there, but I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on the Pied Piper? Is there any sort of clown Nephilim sort of sim- symbol with within that character? Well, never mind the fact that he steals all the children when the people refuse to pay him. <laughs> I think there's something there which is has a satanic undertone to it in that regards. You know, if you make a deal with the devil, you better keep up your end of the bargain or else you'll pay the consequences, you know. So there is that. The Pied Piper himself is like a jester, isn't he? He's a, he's a jester archetypical character. He dresses in, often depicted in Harlequin clothing. And, and that's directly pulled from the Camille de l'Art movements of the time out of the medieval period right. um, into the 17, 18, 1900s, you know. He is just, I think he is just pulled from as a stock character from the Harlequinards and put in, inputted into this fairy tale story, right. the Grimm's fairy tale kind of world. And the Germanic fairy tales are just brutal. I actually have a really old, like, I think it, it was published in like 1889 book of these fairy tales. And this is falling to pieces, you know, and you read them and it's just so blunt and, and brutal and, and there's no happy ending ever. And it's just, and they died. That's the end of most of them, you know what I mean? Right. And something horrible happens to them. But that to one side, I do believe that character is kind of pulled from the Camille de l'Art movements. It's basically just Harlequin. And Harlequin himself, 
I've actually just been writing this section in my book, rewriting it all and getting it clear. But he is the, the he is a character which is purposefully a reminiscence or a representation of the wild man of Europe tradition. Wow. Well, he was, yeah, I can go deeper or you have something to say there, but that's... No, I think you kind of prompted perfectly what I'm about to read because I didn't even think of the kid connection, but that is in this chapter that I'm about to discuss. And I'm kind of reading this because I don't think Lauren Coleman, the author of this chapter, you know, I don't think he's considering the Nephilim angle. Maybe this isn't an idea that's come across his plate yet. So let's dive in and then maybe we'll get back to what you were just talking about. I'm excited to read this to you because I want to hear your thoughts on it. So the new multicolored clothing on the stranger made people feel slightly uneasy. The man's name, Bunting, was a reflection of his attire. The residents of the small Westphalian town were soon to learn. The tall, thin newcomer offered his services to the town council, and they readily accepted. Pest control was a serious problem in 1284, and this fellow, Bunting, said he can get rid of all the rats in town. Thus, the beginning of the legend of the Pied Piper of Hamlin was born. Bunting did lure the rats with his mystical music into drowning in the Wesser River. Maybe Weiser River? I don't know. I don't know German pronunciation. But the townspeople refused to pay him. The Pied Piper decided to collect in another fashion. On St. John's Day, June 24th, Bunting returned to Hamlin and piped his haunting tune. Soon all 130 children were enchanted into following out of the town and into a cave in the Kopenberg Mountain. The entrance was sealed and the children were trapped forever. The legend of the Pied Piper of Hamlin is said by some scholars to be based on truth. Others feel the story grew out of the Children's Crusade of 1212 in which 20,000 young crusaders marched towards the east and were never seen again. Whatever its origin, the tale is a well-known one having been retold in many ways at various times. Robert Browning's poem, for example, was written in the 1800s and places the events of the Piper's last visit to Hamlin on July 22, 1376. The town of Hamlin does exist, and perhaps the sinister character and deeds of Bunting did as well. In the spring of 1981, Boston, Massachusetts, appears to have been the port of entry for a new version of the Pied Piper story. During the first week of May, some individuals in multicolored clothing, just like Bunting's, began trying to entice schoolchildren into coming along with them. The reports of clowns in vans bothering children were openly discussed in the newspapers by the school committee, the area police, and scores of parents and children. On May 6, 1981, the Boston police, responding to to persistent complaints, warned that the men in clown suits were harassing elementary school children. One of the men had been seen wearing a clown suit only from the waist up. From the waist down, he was naked. According to reports, the clown had driven a black van near the recreational horseshoe site of Franklin Park in the Roxbury area of Boston between 4 and 6 p.m. So he also appeared in this neighborhood. And then days later, in a town next door, a town called Brookline, two clown men were seen trying to lure children into a van. And then we have another example in a completely separate part of Boston where a man is trying to lure children to a van completely dressed like clowns. And there's on and on examples. Like this guy obviously spent a lot of time digging through the papers at this time. Now this book 
it came out in well i think it came out in the 90s but as you can see you know the 1980s there that's our date for when this stuff happened and some people have tried to explain this away you know saying oh well the book it maybe inspired people to do this kind of thing right cuz in i think 1986 the book came out but that doesn't quite match up, right? Because these stories are happening in 1981 before the clowns were, you know, or before the book It was out. And Stephen King, he's not too far from this area of Boston. So who knows? Maybe he was inspired by these creepy events. But it doesn't stop there. There are reports all the way down in Providence, Rhode Island, which isn't too far from Boston, of the same thing going on. And then a thousand miles west in Kansas City, Missouri, around the same time of year, 1981, police cruisers on the Missouri side crisscrossed the city chasing a knife-wielding clown in a yellow van that had been reported at six different elementary schools. And then previous, the previous week in Kansas, school children said a clown had chased them home from school and threatened them if they didn't get into his van. So this is, again, another string of reports in Kansas City, Missouri, not very close to Boston during that same year. And it doesn't stop there. In Pennsylvania, during the first week of June 1981, children in the Hill District of Pittsburgh said two men dressed in clown suits and driving in a van had bothered them. So you're starting to get the picture I'm painting here. And I mean... I think there's tons of different avenues we can go down to explain this. So I'm just going to write down some things so I don't forget. But what I'm thinking is to ask you is, do you think these like beings, whatever they might be, could be possessing people and maybe sort of, you know, giving them this motivation to dress up like that and commit these kind of weird things? Or do you think it's like an organized gang of people kind of doing this in ritual, like a secret society of people? Because obviously this isn't some like prank or stunt pulled by people who like the book. It wasn't even out yet. And, you know, I don't know how much creepy clown media there was in 1980s. Maybe there was, but it just seems kind of odd, you know? What are your thoughts on that? Like I said at the beginning the advent of the clown as we know it is goes as far back as the 18 literally 1800 and it's been used ever since then specifically for the purpose of venerating and evoking and channeling demons that's what it's for it's only to the public like i said are we ignorant that's its purpose so to us it seems like just a bunch of scary crazy people dressing like clowns coming for your children well it goes way deeper than that I agree with you. You're, you're, there's some, first of all, I need you to send me all these links to whatever you've just read, because <laughs> I will need all of that for my own book. Will do. Um, absolutely. So please send, email me everything you've just said to me there. And it's funny, on, on this similar vein, I have been researching briefly. I, I've not got to that section in my book yet. I'm trying to do it one thing at a time. But I have touched on murderers who dress like clowns or end up displaying clown-like clothing or images, you know. And there's one major example currently. Um, he's... I can't remember his name. He's, um, I think he's an Hispanic uh, person in America who murdered somebody in a motel, basically, and ended up in prison. And he's got life sentences. And even then, when he was in prison, he had a tattoo of a big wide smile on his mouth. And since being in prison, he now has black lines tattooed down his each eye as well. He's got more and more clown-like in the way he dresses. And he openly says, I'm a Satanist. 
I worship Satan. I love Satan. I don't feel any remorse for what I did. I'll do it again. I'll keep killing. This is not the last time I'm going to kill. He has just very recently, in the past four years, in prison, slaughtered his cellmate and made a necklace out of his fingers and bones and things like that in in the room. And so he's wow. now serving, going through the court justice for another life sentence on top of his already life sentences. Yeah. And he, you should just see him. He's clowned himself up even more as he goes deeper into it. And he makes no quarrel that he is a demon channeling Satanist and he wants them to come into him. So there's this, he knows the purpose of the clown makeup is what I'm trying to say. You know, he's clued into that thing. It, you, you dress like the thing to evoke the thing. Right. Simple as that's how it's always been practiced in every other culture. But in the West, we've kind of been naively taught that you dress like things to scare away evil spirits. So that's why in Halloween, that, that's how it's childlessly sold to people. Like you dress like monsters to scare away the monsters. Wild man tradition rituals all over. But just before Ash Wednesday and Lent, and we have this moment of revelry, you know, where people dress like the wild man, the demon, which is what Harlequin's based on, the jester. And, you know, you do excess, excessive things, scare away all the demons before the fast. And it's just naivety. It's just stupid. It's wrong. It's, that's not what it's for. That's just how we've kind of been lied to about its purpose. So when I hear stories about people dressing like clowns trying to steal children, then I, I, I only imagine secret societies and their adrenochrome obsession and they want the children. They want to distill fear into them. Children are instinctively terrified of clowns. You might get the odd child who likes clowns, but they are the outlier they are not the pattern not the trend studies have been done modern day studies which i'm going to mention in my book as well that prove children just do not like clowns they do not like them there's something about them instinctively that children just do not like it it brings up everything negative emotion wise and it has a lot to do maybe with the face mask and the inability to read emotions which is a key thing for children that they need in development you know but I think it goes deeper. I think it's because they can see something that we kind of don't understand as adults. Cause you always see, don't you, you know, there's these old photos from like the 1900s of clowns holding babies and the babies are just screaming and they have this contorted face of terror, tears just bursting down their eyes, their mouth wide open, you know, the veins are popping out of the neck. They're like, get this monster away from me. It's got me. It's got me type of look on the face. And the parents are there in the image, like laughing, like, oh, isn't this cute? How darling, how, you know, how innocent, how lovely, how silly. And it's, listen to your child. <laughs> I don't know what was wrong with these people during this era, but they... They seemed, I think maybe it was some kind of trauma that generation was under that. They just couldn't see the evil staring them in the face or something. But uh, yeah, if clowns, it's, this is the thing about clowns, they've been sold to kids as well. So it's the idea you dress like a clown, you know, and it'll make the children come to you type of thing so you can snatch them. You know, it's that seems like what maybe they were going for. But I think it's a bit deeper and darker than that. I think either a clown can make somebody laugh or it can make somebody have extreme repulsion and fear. And I do believe the demonic entities feed off energy. And I think laughter or fear, they're happy to take either. It doesn't matter to them. I think it's a fine line, in fact, between manic laughter and crying. There's a very fine line before you cross over into the other. I think the same muscles are involved, the same energy, the same processes are involved psychologically. And a clown can evoke both of those powerful emotions from an individual, extreme laughter or extreme fear. And that's perfect for the entity that's now in the person dressed like the entity, because then it can use that vessel to loose the energy straight from them as like a conduit. 
And I think that's what's going on. I think that's what these secret societies, these members of these cults are doing in that coordinated attack in the 80s. They're going after the children to generate fear. And obviously that releases adrenaline into the blood. Another thing they want to gain from the child in the the most heinous, terrifying way possible. And what better way to get the most terror out of a child than to dress like the very thing they know they will fear the most. An ancient predator that's instinctively built into their DNA to fear, you know. Right. These things were predators originally. They ate us. Can you imagine living in a world full of giants that look like white-skinned, big, wide-lips, toothy monsters eating you? <laughs> like it would have been... That leaves a scar on the collective psyche of humanity, unfortunately. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, we know we know it instinctively. So I'm not surprised that you tell me these stories. I'm not. And the practice is older than that. It's older than the 80s. It's probably been going on since the advent of circuses. You know, like a, a circus, is, as I explained in the first one, is a creation of Freemasons. P.C. Barnum and Bailey, the Ringling Brothers, every last one of them a Freemason. The combined circus they put on together and popularized in America involved the white fl- the white-faced Joey Clown, as it's known, the Joey named after Joseph Grimaldi. And a circus ritual is a direct... They don't even hide this, okay? you can. I've got the documents, I've got the receipts. It's a copy of the rituals performed in Freemason Grand Lodges, just in a tent in, on a grander scale the ringmaster of a circus who orchestrates the ritual or, you know, dictates the patterns of, of the clowns or the demons is a copy of the worshipful grandmaster of the lodge, who is the only one allowed in a lodge to wear a top hat, the same top hat the ring leader wears in the ritual in the circus. It's just a an esoteric copy of what goes on in the lodges. So rather than obviously communing with demons in secret, they're doing it out in the open with the conduit being the clown to represent the demon in the ritual. Right. It's that's all it is, you know, and it's been going on since that time. We're talking 200 years in the making as circuses started to develop through the 18th, the 1800s into the, the 20th century, you know, yeah. uh, they kind of died out a little bit after maybe the fifties and the sixties and dissipated out. But now the clown is just ingrained into our society and it's on TV instead. And it's another avenues of media rather than the circus anymore. The circus has moved to the screen in the room. You know, it's and another way that really just dawned on me when you're making the note about laughter and and crying and how there are similar, you know, expression and similar muscle movement, you know, expression of the nervous system, um, pranking, right? I, I don't know how natural pranking is to human culture. I wonder if like, you know, pranking is something that goes on in like more, you know, tribal situations. Not that's any example of like primitive, but I wonder like how universal rather pranking is because there is like a, you know, I'm sure everyone's experienced like the fun side of it when it's lighthearted and there's not a lot of real consequences and you get this kind of excitement and thrill. But when a prank does go wrong, and I'm sure most people have experienced this, especially if you have like siblings like I do, um, you you feel bad about it. It And you realize like, oh, that wasn't worth the payoff. Right. And I feel like clowns, that's almost what they get off on, like, and that's kind of their whole point is like, at least what I've seen of clowns on TV, it's like a lot of like, you know, squirting water out at you from a flower or hitting you over the head with something big, but kind of soft or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And it just, yeah, it does kind of, you know, expose a part of our human psyche that we all kind of indulge in. But yeah, I wonder, you know, that if that's like, 
what you describe in one of your videos, like louche, like that's kind of like the heart of that experience, you know, maybe in a more innocent way in the form of pranking. Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of pranking, there are examples of Nephilim creatures in the North American plains of, of the tribes at that time who contended with the mound builders, you know, these giants that were kind of in the land. And there's one particular story that the Duwamish people had to deal with, and they called them the Nungnungs. They, were, they went by many other names, but they called these creatures, these giants, this other tribe of giants that lived in the same territories as them, as the Nungnungs. And they would say that these things would regularly kind of come into their tribe and kind of, you know, steal their clothes off the line. And they were described as pranksters. They would always pull pranks on the humans, but they were like cruel pranks. They know the humans can do nothing about like, you know, and stealing their food, their fish, uh, tipping things upside down that humans can't tip back over. I think, you know, (laughs) just doing things to them, messing with them for their own humor and laughing. They, They said they had a very rude making these tribes blush type of sense of humor you know what i mean the mm-hmm. things they would do with their with their body parts and things like that they were just awful monsters you know and giants with pale skin red hair the usual description of all the giants that were there you know and um this is the thing though they 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 kept stealing women and sometimes the women came back sometimes they didn't and it's what can we do these are giants, <laughs> you know what I mean? Was, and they were cannibals as well, you know, they, they they had that nature about them as well, you know, it's kind of, we're not sure what we can kind of do about this tribe. And, and one day, the leader of the Duwamish people in that area stood up to them and they didn't do much, but just basically lambasted them and said, you need to stop stealing our women, you can't keep doing this to us anymore. It's not fair type of thing, you know, and for this insolence, of this petty human thinking it had the gall to stand up to these more superior creatures, they decimated them then and there. They ripped the head off off of all the young braves. They threw bodies above the tree canopies, just decimated the tribe just because they dared to stand up to them vocally. You know what I mean? But up until that sudden schizophrenic switch to manic murderous rage, they were jokesters. They were pranksters. They were they were they, they were poking and prodding hu- the humans and trying to get reactions out of them, you know, and pushing boundaries with them and things like that. And as soon as the humans were like right, we've had enough. They were like what? And then just destroyed them. And it says in the story you know, that they never really recovered from it. This tribe, like they barely, re- and it still haunts them in the oral tradition memories to this day. You know, it's and I find it interesting that they're described as tricksters, pranksters, you know, as you're talking about. Maybe that's why naturally we, we do feel a bit cheated when we've been pranked. Maybe there was something from this past again. Maybe there was something very irreverent about these Nephilim creatures when they were around that we kind of have a disdain for maybe now in the modern day. I, I don't know, but I'm just spitballing here from these stories I've heard. But there's something there. In terms of laughter as well, there's a, there's a drug called Salvia Divinorum. I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard of it. You know, you can come in different strengths, usually goes by times, doesn't it? And I believe that plant is actually one of the most powerful psychedelics on the planet. It's equal to, if not more so, than dimethyltryptamine. And I've done it a couple of times. In fact, in fact, it was the first drug I ever did when I was 16. Not really understanding anything about DMT by this point, or that it was equal to or on par with the most. I didn't know all that, you know. But I did it anyway. And And one of the main side effects I had, other than going to another dimension, was manic laughter. I couldn't stop laughing. And it got to the point where I'm I'm howling in trying to stop laughing that it hurts. I'm in pain because I'm trying to stop laughing and I can't. And fear sets in, but I still laugh. And the laughter suddenly 
going from laughing starts to sound like wails of pain. Very quickly it switches, but it's laughter and it's pain at the same time. It's a weird sensation of feeling and you can't stop doing it. And if it is the case that in those moments I'm channeling an entity from the other side, could it be that they have been there so long in this insane, crazy, fractal matrix that makes no sense with no physicality and is just wild and insane that the entities who possess you are a bit manic and laughing all the time in a Batman Joker's type insanity. And when they possess people, laughter is what comes out straight away because they just see they are everything is just a joke to them because they live forever in this prison of insanity, <laughs> of, of chaos, you know. And maybe laughing is all they do, in a sense. So that's why we get this lead into the physical realm of symbolic characters like jesters and jokers and clowns to represent them. Yeah. Maybe that's another way it bled into our into the physical from the spiritual. Because uh, again, if you just watch videos of people tripping on salvia, man, it's it's scary. It's a common effect. This manic laughter of pain and fear. It's well, insane. And it's interesting because you know not. With salvia in particular, although I'm not 100% knowledgeable on all things Native American myths, so hey, there could be a story out there that's similar. But when it comes to ayahuasca, I'm sure you've heard this, the tribes describe spirit beings or plant beings telling them, hey, put these two things together. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of varieties of plants in the Amazon, and they're like, no, take this one and this one, put it together, and you get this amazing thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there are so many interesting experiences that people have. I'm sure you've looked into this. But one experience that I remember reading a long time ago, was by an author named Michael Harner. His book is The Shaman's Way. And uh, he takes ayahuasca. I think he was one of the first like Western anthropologist types to do something like that and then record it. And he describes, you know, going off on this kind of Egyptian style, you know, a funerary boat with these blue jay headed Egyptian like you know, bodied deities, you know, the same way we see in hieroglyphics where it's like a human body and an animal head just Mm -hmm. kind of like juxtaposed, you know, it's a little shocking. But he recalls seeing these like blue jay people and they basically instructed him that they were this type of reptilian that, you know, changed humans' DNA a long time ago, creating humans and you know, there's parallels people have read into the into Genesis and have said that the similar things being described there where, you know, maybe there's some kind of genetic manipulation going on. But I wonder, you know, if these beings, as you described, kind of trapped in that insanity of this like purgatory realm can like communicate through something like a plant and maybe even imbue a plant with those qualities because there are a variety of psychedelics around the world. I mean, even fish and toads and other being, you know, sorts of creatures that aren't quite animal express psychedelic qualities, right? Like fungi, Mm -hmm. right? So I wonder maybe if these beings trapped in the state that they were can shift their consciousness into a plant or something and through that maybe infect, you know, humans to be more like them. I, I think prob- probably it's, yeah, I actually just had a discussion very recently with uh, an author called uh, Vicky Joy Anderson 
And uh, she's heavily, she's very wise on biblical theology, and she knows a lot of information about the spirit, spirit realm from, from a Christian perspective. And I obviously have done my own musings into the spirit dimension myself. So we kind of had this discussion to try and see, hash out what is it exactly? How how does it interact with the physical realm? Where's the bleed through there? Like, how do we, in our physical forms with our limited perception, interact with the spirit realm on a day to day basis? Type of thing. And I do, I do think there's some precedence that. First of all, you, we can interact with it by opening mini portals to it, in a sense, where consciousness can bleed through by, let's say, wearing a costume of a demon, which is a common practice we've discussed already, you know, in these rituals, these folk traditions, and let's say the clown today, you know. But then this, the, the, there seems to be this phenomenon in Christian thought that objects can be cursed in a way. And if you have particular objects in your home, then you're opening up gateways to demons. It's a very common trope I've heard a lot through my years in conspiracy about this idea that, you know, get rid of your occult books, get rid of all the pagan stuff you've got in your house, you know, just bin it, get rid of it, leave it, and then you'll be free from the influence that those can have. So I do think there seems to be some kind of precedence or an understanding that the demonic spiritual presence can in some way imbue themselves into objects, definitely. And I think there's probably like magical occult pagan understandings of this as well. I mean, I, I know this isn't reality, but I'm hearkening back to, let's say in Skyrim, where you can get soul gems and empower your sword with it. And it's you trap the spirit of the thing in the, you know, yeah. there's probably some precedence for that concept oh, yeah. seems to be built into our our fantasy and fiction as well probably there's some reality to it in some way because like i said the christians fear objects that could have a, a get open a gateway to if not actually be already possessed by a demon in their own respect so in terms of plants something natural in nature i mean I, I believe from my own research i don't think there's a really a difference between our realm and this supposed spirit realm right. i think it's the same thing i think our perception of that side of this reality has just been limited. And they can theorize why that's the case. I think it has something to do with the rainbow after the flood discussed to Noah. I think our perception was limited to this, the, the spectrum of color, which are, is the light spectrum that we perceive with our eyes, you know. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. I think because after the flood, the, the idea was we need to save mankind from communing with these spirits now that they're disembodied. And how do we do that? then we limit mankind's perception to actually physically perceive them. Mm. So that's, I think that's what's something to do with the covenant of the rainbow is really all about. Not just that I won't flood the earth again, but also I will now protect you from the spirits that now dwell on the earth and will become a huge problem for mankind in the future. You know, So yeah. it's kind of to protect us from them in a way. Well, and and I, I, sorry, go on. I just, I hate to cut you off, but this okay. thought just struck me when you said rainbow because what is a rainbow but a demonstration of frequency, vibration, and light, right? And light form Absolutely. visually. There's been so many people that I've run into recently, particularly on this show, that have talked to me about stone and how certain conditions can be created where physical living tissue can be instantly turned to stone or vaporized even. And there are... Tons of reports of people finding giant skeletons only to have the skeletons just sort of wither away to dust as soon as they're exposed to the light. And just last night I was looking at this this evidence found in Sardinia of giant men, you know, stone men that were found, these big statues made out of stone. And I'm wondering, like, could 
that be an aspect to this, you know, attempt to wipe out the Nephilim? Could they have like literally turned them into stone? I might have asked you something like this the last time we talked, because it's been a, a theme on the show, like turning things to stone. But mm. have you come across anything that may indicate something like that was done? And maybe the rainbow is like a coded hint at that, like, you know, frequency and vibration being used to change the, you know, physical matter of things. In some way, yes. I've heard plenty of theories and throughout my year, like you have about mountain ranges, for example, are the bodies of these Nephilim that died. You know what I mean? And they've been petrified throughout time and turn and organic matter does eventually turn to stone over time. And it's kind of something that's kind of been hidden from us, but it's not a it's not a secret necessarily. They just don't tell you this stuff about organic matter, so we will never bring it up or think about it. And there's a lot of images out there which are very compelling that look like curled up bodies which are islands, you know what I mean? And and uh, I don't know, again, I, I can't say that's the truth, but it's it's compelling. It's compelling to, and it's interesting to think about. And it would answer the question of, well, where are all the bodies of these giants gone then? You know, it's kind of like they're here right now, everywhere, scattered all around us and they make up our landscape type of thing. They're just stoned now, so we wouldn't interpret them as otherwise. I've read a lot of those stories you're talking about where in the 1800s and the 1900s, they were digging up these bones from these mounds in America and all over the earth. And again, they just turn to dust as soon as they get them to expose them to air. So they're just, they're not flesh or anything. There's something else now. They're just like a weak, brittle matter of some kind. Um, And in terms of the rainbow transforming us, I just discussed this on the CFR network uh, last week. And again, on this idea that I think... When the rainbow appeared, something physical did change with humanity. We became, I suppose, in a way, lesser than what we were, it kind of. But I think it's more limited. Like our capacity was reduced, like I said, to lower that frequency of vision so we can't perceive the spirits that are everywhere now to protect us from it. It was a mercy. It wasn't a cruel punishment of any way. Wow. It was so we wouldn't have to commune with these monsters now and they can stop influencing us. You know, that was the agenda but i think with that i think reality did get a lot harder a lot more physical in that process of tuning down the frequency and i think that's where things became we stopped being mankind and we became human do you know what i mean color men <laughs> shades of color men type of thing we became kind of like i said a shadow of what we previously were in a sense and everything became a lot more material a lot, a lot more in the realms of matter i think the antediluvian age is a magical realm where we could see the spirit realm and the flow of energy in the air and harness that energy through telepathy and there was weird stuff going on you know it was the mystical magical wonderful land for the monsters and energies and magic in, in a literal sense you know not this illusion sense we have in our physical realm where it's all smoke and mirrors i'm talking you know like maybe the sparkles out of wands out of staff stuff you know may have actually been going on then because we could perceive the flow of energy in a different way yeah because the spirit realm and the physical realm are the same place they're not two separate places and that's kind of our dualistic trick that's been played on us and even now in our lower perception this astral realm people go to on DMT or see on ayahuasca or salvia or in small ways on LSD and mushrooms and even in a very small way interacting with on cannabis, it's not another place. It's not a magical wonderland that you're going to that's better than this one. It's still the exact same place. You've just tuned up that ability to suddenly see it. 
you know, like we used to be able to. The problem is it's a war zone and it's full of an our enemy. <laughs> That's right. you know, and the reason why we shouldn't be going there. It's not that God doesn't want us to have a good time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a serious reason. You know, if you go there ignorant that there's even a war happening and that there's even an enemy to contend with, you're cannon fodder, you're doomed, you know, and you'll believe anything they say to you. How are you going to question them? You're given into astonishment. You're blown away by this wonderful realm that you didn't even know existed. And it's kind of in that moment, you're susceptible to be told anything. And it's usually what they tell you, as you were hinting at earlier, you know, um, they tell you you're a God. They tell you, you know, that or we're your creators. Oh, we're from the fifth dimension or something, you know, we're better than you. <laughs> you know, we're here to teach you how to become ascended masters like us, you know. They'll say something to make God out of the picture, to make you think you're a God or the potential to be God and that they are better than you. That's usually the lie. But the problem is they tell a different story every time. The stories don't add up. Everyone yeah. gets told whatever they want to hear, whatever will work for them. They'll tell you that. And they've been watching you for a long time. They know what you need to hear to be manipulated. They're not stupid. They're they're thousands of years old. They've watched mankind. We die in a short period of time. We're ignorant. We don't learn a lot before we die. They've been watching for a long time. They know how to push our buttons. They know they, and it's a war and we're the enemy to them. You know, we live the life they wish they had. We have a body, you know, (laughs) they have not got that and they want it. And um, we are the prize at the end of the day. And this is what possession is truly all about. Now, I don't believe they can truly possess our bodies in terms of own our bodies. I think that's a myth. That's kind of give them more power than they have credence. They can certainly dwell within us and experience things vicariously through our senses, but we are in control. They can influence. They can whisper things to you. They can make you think your thoughts well, their things they're saying to you are your thoughts. They can sound like you while saying them and they can then influence you to do things which will benefit them that they want to experience that will further their agenda that they are soldiers at the end of the day. They have an agenda. They have people above them who are telling them to influence us to do certain things. It's complicated. As you can, I can go on and on about this. You know what I mean? But it, and I think the point's made with that one. The spiritual realm is real, but it's not a special place. Yeah, always been here and you're not going anywhere spe- this is we didn't really talk about the drug aspect much in the last one but it, it's my world i come from it i'm not ignorant to any of this i'm not just some naive stupid christian who doesn't understand what he's talking about i i tripped hard for five years straight i was microdosing every day on lsd you know what i mean i i've been there i've been in those thought process i i get it but i've learned some facts since then that have put it straight to perspective and it's it's not as complex or mystical as it's been made out to be it's yeah. actually, it's a very simple historically explained scenario that we're involved in here you know and i, I want to try and pull these people out of this dmt thought process on the you know, on the nexus trying to share trip reports i want them to understand that you're being lied to you know just why you trust these beings so much why do you trust them? Why do you implicitly believe that they must have something special to teach you that you won't understand? Like they lie every time, you know, they lie about who they are. Uh, if they were honest, if it was a true scenario, the story would add up each time, Yeah, you know, but it doesn't. And like I said, I, I believe I've explained what they are and where they come from, you know, and it's not just the fallen angels offspring. It's the humans who also manipulated themselves. 
I don't think that the body and the soul are separate things. You mess with the body, you're messing with the spirit and the soul. You're making yourself incompatible to leave the earth, just like the Nephilim, you know. The spirit, the spiritual and the physical are one in that sense. They're not separate entity. <laughs> it's a, I think a lot of people misunderstand what it's meant by, you know, you, we have a soul or a spirit, let's say, and, you know, we have a body. I think people imagine like the, the soul is controlling the meat puppet in some way. And we're not our bodies. And that's not the case. We are an embodied soul. We The body is a reflection of the soul. It, the, the one cannot exist without the other effectively type of thing. Nephilim are spirits. They don't have a soul like we do. That's why they're kind of stuck on earth in a way. And I do think when humanity manipulated the flesh, they destroyed their soul. And now they're nothing but wandering spirits along with the Nephilim they try to be like, you know. And th- these creatures are vast and innumerable. They are legion, they describe themselves as. I think because of their weird disembodied form, they're kind of melding together with each other in that realm. And they are now like a hive mind, weird mentality of some way, you know, and communicate like the Borg, like a machine. Because without defining borders like we have with bodies in that realm, I do think they do kind of float through each other and into each other. And their consciousnesses are constantly merging together. I do think they're entities that are stuck in a perpetual case of like reincarnation of some kind. And these are the religions that they've kind of tried to sell to us to make us believe that we reincarnate. But that's what happens to them. They are Nephilim religions for the, for their kind. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And this goes on. I'll, I'll stop there. I've said a lot. No, and <laughs> I think you're you're making a great case. And, you know, when it comes to all these dispersed cultures around the world, you know, it starts to make sense that point about, you know, they're just lying to people to get what they want out of them because there's this pattern over and over with these beings that come from the stars and have these offerings and these gifts that they share. But then there's also this retribution that comes with it and this, you know, need for sacrifice in many cases. And you got to wonder what that is really about when, you know, humans, for the most part, we've been left in the dark about what it means to, you know, die, what it means to, you know, experience these experiences. I feel like, yeah, maybe there's a willful ignorance that they instilled in people in order to take advantage of us over time. You know, there's that famous saying, I think it's John Keel or someone in that field that says, you know, he thinks that we're cows being farmed, you know, and maybe this adds a whole nother dimension to it. But I have heard in many places that we have become densified and that, you know, the ancient past was more of an astral realm that we were cognitively participating in, whereas now we're kind of asleep to all of that stuff. And, you know, when Mm -hmm. we're asleep, we experience it to some degree, but we forget it. We shed that life when we wake up every morning. So it would make sense along those lines. But, you know, going back to this book, it gets a little creepier as this chapter goes on because at first, you know, it seems like, yeah, maybe these are just sickos, criminals, Satanists, people who are trying to become part of some, you know, underground, you know, warped group of people because it protects them in their sick fantasies. I'm not negating that. That's probably in existence. You know, there might be sick groups of individuals like that. I mean, look at the smiley face killings and all this stuff. So, you know, 
this chapter kind of departs from that. And keep in mind, Lauren Coleman, you know, typically he writes about, you know, UFOs, ghosts, and all other paranormal things. He's not really a true crime author, but he goes on to say that one police officer actually saw what was described as a vampire. Officer John Pepper described the being as a huge person with a white painted face wearing a dark cape. And as the events unfolded, this was in Wisconsin, an incident in Washington, D.C. would distract the media's attention from the vampire's terror. The sightings quickly faded from the press. And he makes the point that, you know, none of this stuff really got published very far. You know, he had to work pretty hard to dig up all these stories. And then he makes a comparison to the Spring-Heeled Jack of Victorian England because a lot of these incidents where people saw these phantom clowns as they were soon described in this chapter, you know, they demonstrated the ability to jump really high or just seem to disappear when they would have just went around a corner. And it brings this whole nother aspect to it where maybe these people who appear to be men dressed as clowns driving around in vans are actually more like the way we see gray aliens coming out of a UFO or we see Sasquatch coming out of the woods, like these clown entities and their vans are something altogether different than criminals doing, you know, sick things, right? I mean, these could be um, demons, Nephilims incarnating. And for those select people who, you know, whatever, get a glimpse into the fourth dimension or this other realm that's, as you put it, around us at all times, we have the mercy from our creator of being kind of shielded from that. I wonder, like, you know, if there are places on the earth where for whatever reason this energy is stronger and we get a glimpse of it and we're kind of seeing that here with these, like, phantom clowns. I mean, what are your thoughts on this and the aspect of these maybe, you know, altogether demonic entities manifesting in that appearance of what we get from our pop culture as the clown. I like, I like it. I like the concept that you've come up with that. I think there's probably something to it. I mean, it makes you wonder like these mass rituals that are always performed by these secret societies, these mass murder events, let's say, or these huge killings, you know, I'm not going to name any particular just for, just for that reason, but I'm sure we can all imagine a major event where thousands of people died. That seems a little bit suspicious and strange and has a lot of symbolism around it. You know, it seems like it, it was some kind of huge sacrificial ritual. You makes you wonder like, what's the true power behind that? And what's the purpose realistically? What do they, you know, what do they gain from it? Does it perhaps, like you said, create a zone, an area through the sacrifice in which the veil is thin? And the entities can manifest physically. Perhaps it, that's what it's for. Perhaps the purpose of these things, and maybe these zones where these things are happening are as a result of rituals that have been performed to bring these entities into the physical realm, so then they can enact certain things. And it, it's telling that they appear as clowns. So when witnessed by people to say, "Oh, a clown did it," yeah, so this clown doing this thing, and that's what they would call it. Cause that's the language they have to describe something that has pale white skin and wild red hair with the red around the mouth. You know what I mean? And big white red lips and a big smile. But maybe at a distance, that's what it looks like. But if I reckon, like I said, if it's if it is a true manifestation, then it's a perfect disguise for them. People just think they're clowns. People just think would people dress like clowns, but we're actually demons right here on earth doing our thing, going after the kids. You know what I mean? Which is, they love to do so much. I think it's it's telling in in the film from 2014, which is called Clown. Uh, I'm not sure. Was it a Scandinavian film? Anyway, it's based on a, a, a fake folklore 
okay, set in Sweden, about a demon who lived in a cave called the Cloyne, okay? And it was a reptile. It was some kind of reptile demon of some kind. And a a father puts on the outfit, he, which he finds in the attic, of a clown, because he needs to quickly find one for his daughter's birthday or something silly like that. Anyway, he does the thing in this weird-looking clown outfit, and then he can't take the nose off, and he can't take the wig off, and it's stuck to him. It's fused to his skin, you know. It's peeling his skin off when he tries to take the nose off, for example. And it turns out what he's done, he's put on the skin of this demon, okay? And the demon has now taken possession of his body because he's now wearing its skin. And it's quite telling that the only way to free himself from the curse of the cloying skin is that he needs to eat five children. Eats them, like. And the more he's possessed by it, the more he becomes this monstrous reptile clown hybrid. That's what it is in the film. It literally it has, it has the yeah. ruffle around the neck, but it's like a reptilian lizard frill with bones going through it, like right. you would see in Australian lizards, for example. You know, And I do think that's what the clown ruffle really represents, a reptilian frill in the modern clown visage. You know, It's not a Victorian ruffle. That's the cover story for what it really represents. You know, But I think it's telling that, like I said, they come for the children. It has to eat the children. That's what it wants to do when it's in physical form. So in that film, physical manifestation of a demon coming into the physical world through the channel of a human body wants to eat kids. In these rituals that may have been performed, the demons manage to manifest into the physical realm. They end up looking like clowns. And they go after the children, try to eat the kids. You know, it's the same It's the same story. But obviously these are, what, 40, 30 years apart, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps it's always been this way. Like you said, whenever they come into our realm physically, they have this pale-faced, vampiric skin thing going on, you know? And perhaps maybe they uh, clown themselves up a bit more to blend in a bit more so people think they just look like a clown. I don't, I don't know. I can only theorize on this matter, but I think there's something to it. Yeah. I think you're right. I think I think it's what these rituals are really for. I think it's to bring the thing into our realm somehow. I think the most effective way, though, is for a human to dress like it, and then it can just go straight into the body. Yeah. That's a door open then, rather than trying to vibrate themselves into a physical form <laughs> from the spirit realm. That sounds a lot more complicated than getting one of the acolytes in the physical realm to just dress like them. Mm-hmm. I think that's easy. And that's what these secret societies do, you know, and well, they get things in return, you know, they get power. And on, on that note, you know, and especially like hiding in plain sight with the Freemasons, which I know they've come up in your research. You mentioned them previously in this conversation, but there turns out I was just talking to a recent guest who it's kind of a secret society buff. He researches these things. And he was saying that there's a group of men called the Royal Order of the Jesters, which I'm sure you're well aware of. I don't know if they're either Freemasons or Shriners or some sort of subgroup of one of those. But apparently there were some incidents where these men got in trouble for abducting children. So, I mean, look at that. Like, you want to say, oh, well, it's secret societies. That's a convenient excuse. Who are they? Well, here's one right here that's pretty obviously, you know, they're going by that, you know. They're taking that symbol full on. So, yeah, any notes on the order of the jesters that you can share? Like, who started this? Or could you figure out, like, maybe, like, well, any of their maybe traditions or initiation practices? Yeah, yeah. So I've I have started to dive into it for my book, um, but I'm still relatively I'm a novice on it because it's one of the most occulted 
societies in the world. It's hard to find anything about it, you know. The Wikipedia page has been just sponged clean. There's nothing about them. There's like a paragraph about them. And it used to be full of stuff. I remember back in the day and it's all gone. So I have to, I'm going to have to rediscover the information. But what you're saying is true. Um, some of the members were caught in a scandal of trafficking uh, prostitutes over state lines to their organization, basically. And the implications for that is if they just wanted a prostitute, they could have gone down the street. They tend to bring things over from other countries when they're of a younger age. Okay, so the implication there is that they were child trafficking for sex, you know what I mean? But it's all been buried. You know, all the names are buried. Everyone involved is gone. You can't find information on it, especially not through a cursory Google search. You'd have to go into the records. And even then, I don't even know where I'd begin to look for these records. It's kind of, it's just one of those things. To become a jester, it's by invite only. And you have to already become a 33rd degree Freemason. And then... Once you're a 33rd degree Freemason, you can become a Shriner. And when you become a Shriner, you usually have to go through to the top ranks of through the, the Shrine, which I think is 13 levels. So once you've gone, you've become the Master of the Masters, you know, then you may get chosen to become a member. Every year they choose 13 people to become a member. <laughs> okay, only 13, very strict rules on it, to become a Jester. It's invite only. And if you ask, you don't get to be one, ever. It's as simple as that, you know, and that's how it's it's the highest level of occult societies. And it's telling that it's, you become a jester, you become like our gods, you become a clown, you know, that's the people we work with and venerate and, you know, the demons, basically, you get to become up there with them. And it does sound like um, some people have described them as like the pimps for the secret societies. They're the ones who get the drugs. They're the ones who get all the, the prostitutes in and the children and all that sort of stuff. Or whatever people want, they supply it. That's kind of their level. That's what they, you know, the, their slogan is Mirth is King. And they have a logo of a, of a thing called a Billykins, which is a fat man with his arms by his side and his legs out with his, with his feet at the front. Kind of like a fat little dwarf character with this horrible menacing grin and like angry looking eyes. And he often has like his phallus sticking out, which is like a gavel of some kind on it. And it's just a highly sexualized symbol of, of mirth. It's supposed to represent joy and fun and mirth. And and the Billikins was adopted from a, a, an artist from the 1920s, I think, a, a woman who created this thing, this creature. And I don't really know much about her yet. There must be something going on with it for it to be so important that they used her symbol. But it was generally... It was highly popularized in Japan as well. They have taken the Billykins and put it in a specific building and venerated it as like a god of some kind. It's very weird stuff. But the free these Freemason cult offshoots, this this high level jesters, was created around the same time in the 1930s. And the backstory is some Freemasons got together and created their own group, and it was just for fun. The whole purpose of it is nothing but fun. We're not about serious things. We're not even about charity. We're just about having a good time. And it's by invite only. And that's all we know. That's all we're supposed to know about it. I think they give the name of the person. I don't, off the top of my head right now, I don't know the name of the person who created it, but you can go find it by doing that cursory one paragraph Wikipedia description, you know, and that's all you'll really find about it. And again, there's this historical record of, Lately, the members have been caught in some kind of child sex ring trafficking thing. You know, I'll give you a slight insight to what they're about. But I do think in terms of hierarchy that they are the top of that pyramid in terms of Freemasonry, shrining and then jesters. 
then the symbology is there to match up with my theory is all I'm saying. And obviously shrining, every shrine has their own clown section. Okay. And they have their own hospitals in which the shrine of clowns go. And they only let in sick children who are like lame or disabled. <laughs> you know what I mean? They don't really let in like diseased children, for example, <laughs> which is very strange. And it's free, isn't it? You know, the shrining hospitals free care for these children. But if you know what these guys are into, and you've just given them access to children, you know, and they are dressing like demons to go and entertain the kids, you know, in these hospitals that they own, which are the perfect tax write-off. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of yeah. something dodgy going on. And why the clown was so heavily adopted by Shriners, this, this supposed Arabic-rooted offshoot of Freemasonry, why a clown had a Western clown, it would have had anything to do with the Islamic <laughs> Middle Eastern type, type, you know, the Moorish architecture type stuff, you know, it baffles the mind. But when you actually understand, you know, this is just a, they are venerating the demon out in the open and they are channeling them into their well, bodies while entertaining children in hospitals who are dying and in fear. Yeah. It's perfect. It's like a loose, it's a banquet for the demons. You yeah, know, it's a loose farm. Yeah, for sure. And, and they're, men on the ground the secret society members are the perfect vessels willing to let them in you know yeah and and like i said this is the thing these demons have a whale of a time all over the earth hmm. people letting them in all over the place in these folk traditional rituals you know what i mean they're willingly letting them in and they put on a little show for them you know while doing it and uh, because they call them ancestor spirits they don't know that they're yeah. necessarily evil they think they're the creators of their civilization and they let them in but in the west like i said you don't just let a demon in willingly and publicly. It's shunned. We have Christ here. You know, it's a heavily Christianized world and it's more dangerous for the demon to, to do it openly in our world. Well, because if a, if a Christian finds them, they could cast them out and that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want that happening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So they have to be hidden and that's why all the secrecy, that's why the clown was invented to hide in plain sight type of thing. That's it's all. Well, and historically, you know, we have the Christians sort of going in and rooting out the pagans. Right. And, you know, some people say that's a bad thing. And I, I think there's bad aspects to it. We both agree colonization, politics, all those other things sort of cloud maybe the original intention of the missionaries. But yeah. I recently found something talking about Pope John Paul II. I believe he recently passed away and he had a book that he wrote. He said he wouldn't release until a few years after his death. And apparently it's been released in Italian and it's been completely suppressed and people are having a hard time receiving the book, even though they already paid for it and things like that. And one of the things that's allegedly discussed in this book of his is that there's a mafia at the top of the Vatican of homosexuals who are basically making it so that only, you know, the people they choose get into these powerful positions and, I'm wondering to myself, like, and, you know, you can totally excuse this question if, you know, you don't want to comment on something like this, I understand. But do you think it's possible that, you know, maybe the same aspects of secret societies like the jesters and these sort of really sick individuals would have some sort of vengeance against the Christians who weeded them out of all these places. So then they infiltrate that and begin to bastardize that. And, you know, obviously the Vatican archives have all sorts of information probably talking about these people. So it would make sense that these 
devilish beings would want to get in there and erode that, you know, institution. Not that I'm a champion of Catholicism or anything. I'm sure there's lots they're guilty for, but have you looked into them at all? And what is your perspective on that from this Nephilim, you know, research point of view? I, I, I don't hold much credence to the Catholic theology, to be honest. I don't think they are really... I know they would argue differently. Trust me, I'm not here to settle the, 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 these this almost 1,500 year old debate about whether Catholics are Christian or not. You know, but uh, for what for what I can tell, um, we're not supposed to pray to saints or dead people. Okay, which is what they do. It's necromancy, and I don't believe a human being can absolve us of sins. I think only Jesus can do that which is what the Pope and is supposed to be able to do in the confessional is all about. I think it already is a bastardized, corrupted version of the truth of Christianity from the very beginning. I think, it, like you said, its roots literally are that stereotype story of Rome just trying to keep control so they Christianize their pagan idols, you know. I think it literally is that. So it's a breeding ground for demons based on that already um, weak foundation of theology and Christianity. Um, so I'm not surprised that this has come out that there's literally some of the most heinous characters at the very top of the organization. And, you know, that's basically all I can really say about that. I think without getting too controversial. But, yeah, uh, no. And I appreciate you indulging that small tangent, but it just, it popped into my head. And another thing I wanted to ask you about what on the point of the Shriners is, you know, you do make a good point. Like where do clowns come in to a group that's supposed to revere like all this is Islamic, you know, esotericism, right? Because that's kind of like at the underpinning of that, right? Is that there was yeah. this Islamic renaissance and all sorts of esoteric information was cultivated there at a certain time. And, you know, people appreciated that and maybe gathered it into this group. But we also have the jinn from that culture. And I've heard recently that the jinn can be described very similarly to the Nephilim and even look reptilian in some instances. It's described that these jinn have reptilian aspects to them. So, yeah, maybe that sheds light on what's really going on. I don't know if the Shriners use the genie in the lamp symbology at all, if they have that lamp symbolism going on. But I have seen the lamp used in certain groups, you know, in secret societies as well. There's a certain secret society at Yale that has the lamp as their, you know, symbol. And yeah, I think it's been like, you know, a symbol of illumination, but it's also got that connotation of having possibly a disincarnated spirit in it. So yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on the jinn? Do you think the Shriners maybe, you know, found a back door there into the Nephilim worship when they found all this stuff about the jinn? Yeah, well, in terms of the cultural descriptions or interpretations of demons, I think... I know people don't like, in, in especially in the Gnostic esoteric world, tautologies of a, of a sort, but I do think it's just the same game with a different name across every continent. And don't get me wrong, there are variations in the way Nephilim looked. If you look at the snake species, you know a snake when you see one, but the amount of kinds of snake out there with different patterns and shapes are numerous. And it's just the same thing for a Nephilim entity. There would have been many different kinds of Nephilim, but all fundamentally they're of a kind. You know, they are serpents in that respect, reptilian, let's say, you know, um, some in some cases amphibian or insectoid is another description. But you look at all those type of creatures, you know, amphibian, reptilian, avian, or insectoid, they're incredibly colorful and psychedelic and trippy and weird. Okay, they have a very colorful palette about them. And I do think a lot of these hybrid creatures and the Nephilim creatures had these 
serpentine, like chimeric mix of like animalistic features mixed in with human features, you know? So they would have had this psychedelic, weird looking, elongated, big glowing eye, big wide grin, strange psychedelic colored pattern skin type thing going on. So I think like the gin, which is also described in spirit form as smokeless fire. That's a really common description. And I think it's interesting because in, in the similar region, the Zoroastrians of is it, is it Iran? The, the Zoroastrian religion originally is based. Is it old Iranian mythology? Yeah, I don't they? I understand very loosely, but they kind of have a similar story to Christianity. It's not the same. It's they, they have, have a messiah. A, yeah, they have a dualistic view of the world of right. the good entity and the evil entity that are kind of always in this eternal struggle with each other. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. But they also believe that they pray to the good entity by staring into fire. Now they don't worship fire. Fire is like a medium or a tool, like like Catholics use a cross. They don't worship the cross that in their hand, but they understand it's a method to channel to, through to their God, you know. And I do believe Zoroastrians do use fire as a means to communicate or pray to their God, the, the good aspect, you know, the good, the light being, not the negative being type of thing. So I think it's interesting how this Middle Eastern type of society, smokeless fire is related to the jinn. And fire is used as something to focus on in order to communicate with the spirit realm. It's just something there about that. But that's in spirit form. I think in physical form, I think that the jinn that they're communicating with now would have looked just like the Nephilim, just a different species of Nephilim, but still the same kind within a different geographical location. Because mm-hmm. you go on my channel, you'll see I've gone to each continent and you'll find there are, there are similar entities so there's minor variations on each continent, but they're all seem to be of the same nature, of the same kind, and share some similar traits. Uh, big glowing eyes is one of them. A big wide smile is another one with kind of fanged book teeth sticking out. Incredibly pale white skin is another common factor that goes through them. It's not always the case. Some of them have incredibly blue skin. Some of them have really crazy green colored skin, but so do snakes. You know, they are going to come all shapes and colors and sizes, but there's always kind of like a common thread that links each one together. And the stories always seem to line up to something similar that they are the offspring of the gods mixing with the earth or mother Gaia or human women or something like that. You know, they have their own stylized, poetic, metaphorical way of describing a similar event, which produces these reptilian hybrid human monsters. Mm. Like I said, all the clown is today is just a caricatured Western drawing of these features kind of mashed together into a clown. Because I think the Freemasons of the day, you know, of, of the past were traveling men. They would have gone to each continent and seen all of these folk traditions and these rituals and what the people were dressing like. And they would have picked, cherry picked pieces from each culture that they witnessed because then they know they're all communicating with the same beings. Yeah. Okay. So we can just take a, a, an element of each culture and we could put them all together and you get a clown. And, <laughs> well, and then the poker- it's all the so- more stranger that people are seeing what seems like entities, beings that do things that defy human capabilities and they have that appearance of the clown and they seem to be, you know, fascinated with children to the point of terrorizing and abducting them and. Wow, I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, what I wonder what that says about like the power of the human mind or just the ability of these beings to appear this way. And like this author, Lauren Coleman, points out, like the Spring Heel Jack, which was around around the same time, like Freemasonry was still kind of 
I don't know, in its early days, so to speak, right? Spring-Heeled Jack was in the, like, 1700s? No, I think it was, like, the 1800s. Oh, okay, well, then... I think it was relatively modern. Okay. It was around the same time of Jack the Ripper, that type of period of time. Right, right, Um, right. Yeah, and it was, like, a deviled character, horned character, wearing, like, the the clothes of the time, murdering people and just disappearing in a puff of smoke, you know, like I said, jumping onto the rooftops and just vanishing, and it's, like... What is this thing? Well, but people you know? talk about plasma entities or these weird entities that could like shapeshift according to our perception. So, yeah, maybe it's thanks to the Freemasons that now these beings have a more proper sort of, you know, appearance to take on. Like, they, you know, it maybe didn't exist in ancient times, but because they took it, all these separate pieces, you know, now these beings are like, yeah, we're going to just like lean fully into it. <laughs> Full clown demon. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny because was a, people keep pointing this episode of Black Mirror out to me that came out recently. Uh-oh. But there's a, it's called Demon's number something. It's like Demon 54 or something like that. I can't remember that. Don't, don't quote me on that. But it's Demon something, like a number. Mm-hmm. Like a, and basically it manifests to this woman. And he looks at himself and he's dressed like a 70s singer, like a, a black 70s singer with an afro wearing like 70s clothing with the fur all over him and stuff like that. And the first thing he says to her, is this what a clown looks like in your world? That's the first thing he says to her in this thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he's kind of like, he's, yeah, he's trying to look like the clown. It's very oh, strange, very strange timing, my theory coming out. And then suddenly this episode comes out and they say this is, call it synchronicity or what, I don't know. But it's kind of like they're laughing at us about it. Well, yeah, of, I think they do yeah. that. They nod to these truths, you know, especially, you know, to kind of confuse people. And I think because... It also muddies the water where then people say the thing like, oh, well, you just saw that on a movie or a television show or that could only happen because people saw it in a movie and got inspired to go crazy. And it's like, no, as we saw with these cases in 1981, that was five or something years before it had even come out. And before then, I don't know if there were any like mainstream smash successes around clowns the way that was. Obviously, the circus was in everyone's you know, sort of memory as a big thing. I I went to the circus in the 90s, you know, it was still around when I was a kid, but, you know, very sort of outdated now. And here's our new modern theater of the mind, which is the internet, streaming, you know, memes. And there's that whole clown sighting flap in 2018 or 2016, around the same time that the movie came out again, right? Because there was a I think there was an older movie, It, and a new one came out, right? So, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you'll get into all this in your book. And, you know, I don't want to keep you too much longer, Paul. I know it's late for you over there in in the U.K. So tell us a little bit about the plans for the book. Do you have any defined idea of when it's going to come out? I supported it on your, what is it, GoFundMe or GiveSendGo, one of those platforms. And I'll have the link to that in the description. But, yeah, what's the word on the book? It's going well. I am just finishing off chapter 14 now, which is the history of the clown. So I'm talking about, like I said, the Comedia Law movements, the, the going through to the into the pantomime into England, and then the creation of the Joey clown, where, where the clown is invented, going into the Freemason aspect of that. Um, then, then the next chap, few chapters to finish off section two are going into secret societies, the clowns, everything we've discussed, how the clown is a representation, a caricature of the Nephilim and why each feature is a defining feature of the Nephilim. And then what section, 
I'm going to talk about the Hat Man in there as well, the spirit enti- uh, shadow entities and the recurrence of the Hat Man character within the spirit realm, which seems to be kind of the ringleader or a some kind of lieutenant of the demons of some kind. Loads of theories on that. And then once section two is boxed off um, by about chapter 20, I then plan on writing about seven chapters on each continent about all the folk traditions around the world, going through each continent and breaking down all the representations of the Nephilim and the the ancestor spirits. And then there'll be a conclusion after section four, where I'm going to go into the pop culture stuff. So I'm I'm halfway there. I planned out about 34 chapters and I'm currently just finishing off 14. So progress has been made. I've been starting writing since March, I think. So we're doing all right. We're doing all right. Um, I'm going to predict it's probably going to be ready and maybe ready to publish hopefully halfway through next year. Wonderful. I don't want to rush it. Um, I've been honest since the start about how long it's going to take. I say it's probably going to be halfway through 2024 where I'll have maybe a, a, fi- a relatively finished final draft and I'll be looking for publishers who want to pick it up. Um, if not, I'll just self-publish by the end of that year. More than likely, if no one wants to pick it up and get on, on board with this idea, you know, I understand, but I'll just self-publish it by the end of 2024, I imagine. Yeah. Um, but it, it's going well. I was just writing actually before I came on with you. Um, so it's, I try and write maybe a few paragraphs a night if I can, but I have a, a, the odd day where I get like three hours just to power through a lot of things, you know, and yeah, right now I'm, I'm in that part of the book where it's just, it's very research heavy, mm-hmm. which is why I want you to send me the, <laughs> the Oh yeah. There. And, you know, anything at all that anyone wants to send me that's extra information, I'm happy to take in. Because this is the thing, like, even though I'm writing the book about clowns, I never thought I would be the guy writing the book about clowns. Do you know what I mean? I'm not like, I was never like a fanboy of clowns or anything. I've never like really given them a second thought. And I still rarely, when I'm not thinking, I'm not thinking about them. You know what I mean? Like right. I have other stuff going on. And it's, I've kind of become the inadvertent expert on clouds somehow. <laughs> I think that's the best way to be, though. I think that demonstrates some integrity, you know, and also some, yeah, <laughs> some sanity that's much needed with a topic like this, because I'm sure there is a lot of crazy information on the subject and you're the guy who's going to sort through it all, which, you know, I'm lucky to have had these past two conversations with you and I'm looking forward to having your book on my shelf because, uh, yeah, I don't know many other people that even touch on this subject at at the length that you do. I mean, the one author I had found, I talked about as much, you know, as I could from his book about clowns. There's a little bit I left off the table and I will send you a link to this, uh, so you can go and check it out again. It's Lauren Coleman's Mysterious America. Um, but yeah. If you're looking for more reading material, there's um, a book by Robert Lima, mm-hmm. L-M-I-A. Um, I've got it up here, actually. I was just reading it earlier. Today. It's called Stages of Evil, Occultism in Western Theater. And there's a whole uh, section on, on Harlequin and the genesis of Harlequin. So that's actually really interesting. It's where I got a lot of my information from on this. But he's broken down the demonic history of it and how that actually came to happen. And there's so much more I haven't said here, which is in my book, but it's it, it it's deep, really long-winded stuff, you know what I mean, about going into Mediterranean history as well and into folklores of Europe and then into the history of the Comida Lart movement and the Arlecchino character and this evolution through throughout that hit time period out of the medieval period. It's all there in great detail, actually. So I'd recommend you try that one. Cool. That's one I've kind of been using recently as a, as a great reference point. 
there's one thing which which we haven't discussed yet in regards to the clown theory. Maybe it's a show for another time because this one's quite fun, but it's the use of it in the music industry. Mm. It's so prominent. It's unbelievable. And I think it's a principle of channeling the thing, dressing like the thing to channel the thing. And there's this whole idea in the music industry of selling your soul for rock and roll, you know, right. making a deal with the devil in order to have talent, skill and fame and fortune type of thing. And you'll find the most famous people in any industry of artistic creation dress like a clown <laughs> in some way. Mm. And I don't necessarily know if this is because if you dress that way, you will be chosen by the humans and the earth who run the industries and be elevated and put in the spotlight to be an idol because you dress like the Nephilim. So you get elevated because you dress like a Nephilim by humans who run the industry or if dressing like a Nephilim has made you be channeling a demon, which is giving you the talent and ability and skill to become famous. It's one of the two, probably both, to be honest. But you'll find the most biggest pop stars throughout history, the ones that make it into the mainstream charts, the ones that get put on a stage and a spotlight's put on them, and you are told through the radio's repetitive nature, these are the best people to ever exist in music and you need to like them. Those people, okay? The ones that suddenly appear out of nowhere and are the biggest sensation ever, apparently. And you're told the music's supposed to be the the pinnacle of human creation and you're like, really, you know? Mm. These people, they tend to dress like a clown. You'll find they have white face makeup, red lipstick of some kind, exaggerated eye features, wild, crazy colored clothing or hair of some kind. They'll always lean that way. And now I've said it, you'll see it everywhere. You will see it everywhere. The most famous ultimate example of this, which is kind of on the nose, is David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The most obvious example. Okay. But it's, he's just the, the surface, you know what I mean? Like I've, I go deep into it a lot on my channel, but it's rife. Any creative endeavor, it seems like they don't have to be a member of a secret society to channel the power of these demons. You just need to dress like a clown and you will get the power. You'll get the fame, you'll get the fortune. It's still being used as a, as a witchcraft practice by non-secret society members and practitioners of this method. You mm. know, and uh, yeah, now, now I've said it, you'll see it everywhere. But maybe we could do an episode in the future just going through all the examples of these people who do this, you know. Yeah, please. I would love to, and I will send you some links. I'm also curious, are you familiar with uh, Chris Knowles? He's an author. He also has uh, been on dozens of podcasts. Have you ever heard of him? As soon as you said the name, a bell went off in my head. I feel like I have. Well, I, I did a I little. I, I, <laughs> he's been on the show a couple times, and I think you might want to have him on your channel because he's like really into the music industry and all sorts of other aspects of conspiracy. And he has a really good head on his shoulders for this stuff. Kind of like mm-hmm. a, you know, big inspiration of mine personally. So I, I could go on and on about how cool he is. But anyways, he has a couple articles on his website that I'll send you uh, a link to about clowns in pop culture because he's always got his eye on pop culture for like different occult symbolism and whatnot and it's come up a couple I see one article about killer clowns from outer space and how you know there's a whole connection to something he was looking into with the siren and a band called the Cocktail Twins. Maybe you're familiar with it, but there's, according to Chris Knowles, all these really weird ritualistic aspects to 
this artist and this band and their music and how it connects to these different deaths of musicians throughout the years and their deaths have these uh, again ritualistic aspects that connect to the siren which i know you mentioned the siren before as one of these sort of fallout so of these genetic experiments but yeah plenty to send you and i'm happy to contribute uh, as little as and as much as i can you know what for whatever it's worth i should say but yeah i'm excited to see when this book comes out brother and uh, yeah definitely have you back on the show then maybe in the meantime i don't want to get in your way i'll leave you to it and hopefully this book Sounds like it's going to be a phone book will come out sooner than later, but... It's getting quite thick, I'm not going to lie. Maybe I'll have to make two books in the end. I don't know. I don't know. But I'm in that stage of just getting everything down on paper. Well, I would say Clowns in Pop Culture is a hot like title, and I can imagine it being having like a really crazy cover. So you might, <laughs> yeah, that might be its own separate book. But yeah, man, this is great. I love having you on the show, and I'm happy to see this book come out, and I'm happy to help in whatever way I can. Like I said, I put a little bit towards the funding of the book, and if folks want to do that, I think they get some attribution in the book, which will be cool, yeah, you, right? You will have a you. Your name will be in the back as a special thank you, along with anybody else who's donated anything at all, whatever right it is. You're going to list at the back of people who have contributed to the book as a thank you. Um, if you've donated over a hundred pounds or more, so that's about one hundred and twenty-five dollars, you will get a free signed copy of the book sent to you personally by myself. So that's a pre-order system going on there. I think I have twenty-two people so far who have pre-ordered. But I've had 60 donations so far as well. So the support has been overwhelming and the messages people send me is wonderful. The response to this theory and this, my work is just amazing. Yeah. Um, People seem to really resonate with it in a way that's kind of answered a lot of questions for them in a way. Um, what what I've because see even though I'm talking about clowns I know a thing or two about a lot of things right <laughs> from years of research and I've kind of tied it all into like a a big image and I think that's helping a lot of people kind of gain some perspective on just how kind of even though it's a complicated conspiracy it can actually be very simply understood just with a bit of understanding about history and symbols you know and yeah. I, I think that's why people like it so much but I mean who doesn't like talking about clowns you know? <laughs> I think that's what it comes down to as well I think it's it's a novel it's a novel concept isn't it and I think it draws people in because Nephilim look like clowns what the hell is this guy talking about type of thing and then suddenly it becomes something actually quite serious and it's not really a laughing matter. You know? <laughs> I think that's what it comes down to. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well said, brother. And I think that's a great place to end it because, uh, yeah, you cast a really wide net and there is so much to get into. And you, I think you are adding a different dimension or a better dimension to the way people perceive a lot of these things that just aren't being explained by our so-called authorities on this reality, right? And as conspiracy theorists, we've abandoned those notions long ago, and folks can learn more than just about Clowns and Nephilim because your channel, Understanding Conspiracy, has all sorts of content. You just put out a, a video today, or recently, I don't know if it was today or yesterday, about just taking a break and why that's important to all of this stuff. So yeah, go and follow Understanding Conspiracy on... Uh, YouTube and all the links to Paul's book, you know, how to pre-order and donate will be in the description of this episode. So please go and do that. And yeah, Paul, thanks brother. This has been awesome. No, thank you. And thanks for the, uh, recommending me to Sam Tripoli as well. Oh, of course. Of course. I have used for that. So thank you very much. And I look forward to speaking to you again.
Right on. Well, until next time, folks, take it easy and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, that was our episode with Paul Stobbs. Second time he's been on the show, and he's got some great content on his YouTube channel, Understanding Conspiracies. There's an entire playlist just dedicated to the uh, clowns look like Nephilim topic, and he's working on crowdfunding a book right now that will probably be the first of its kind discussing this theory uh, so yeah if you enjoyed paul's work please do support him there and folks if you support the podcast you could have listened to this show at least i don't know three four weeks ago obviously this is more of a halloween episode so i wanted to save it for that but not only do you get super early releases like this episode you also get exclusive bonus portions of the conversation for supporters only so do sign up today to support the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast your favorite podcast on patreon or substack those are the best ways to get the best bang for your buck you can also support us on rockfin if you just want the video portion of the show but you'll also get that on youtube and Substack. So please do support the show today and thanks for tuning in. Uh, I got some shout outs to some new Patreon supporters. All right. Shout out to Bruce, to Kay, to Joe, to the Wood Sprite, to Levy, to Garner, Stephanie, uh, Steve. Shout out to Lori, Marcy, and I think that's everybody who's signed up since I last did. Uh, the shout outs if i missed you well i apologize and if you are a supporter well you should be listening on the premium paid uh, feed which you won't hear this shout out you won't hear any promotion any ads anything like that and moving forward we are going to be doing ads on the show so uh, if folks want to get an ad-free version of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast do sign up now to the patreon or the Substack, and you'll get a bonus uh, RSS feed, and that's that. So, thanks for tuning in. Support the show now, and uh, I'll see you next time. Have a great moment wherever you are in the now. MFTIC. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages, hijacking perception tricking the population with holographic projections we see through it the system is unraveling i'm astral traveling through the library of the vatican on a sacred journey i embark with the squad forever spitting truth like mark on the pod gotta know the facts never hold back because i ain't getting caught up in the soul trap i dissect the fabric of reality looking for the answers searching through the galaxy you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. 
we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I awoke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders. Must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head. Monkeys with reptilian faces. Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate. I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit. All of a sudden the wall flickers away. Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft. My getaway. I run to the nearest one. See a guard knock him out. Rob him for his plasma gun. Hop in the ship. Take the controls. They highly intuitive. I figure it out easily. Lift off. Accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light. Fly into the sky. Get flanked. By six F-35 Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.